This is the Asian Madness Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Hi friends, welcome back to the Asian Madness Podcast. Even though I'm writing this episode before 2023, I do hope your new year has been great so far, and if not, let's hope it gets better. So let's get right to today's topic. Today's episode was a suggestion from a listener, so thank you, Nina. I have never heard of this case before, but like always, It's a sad and infuriating case, even though the perpetrator is caught and punished. This is like a second best case scenario though, because best case would be that this crime simply never even happened, as it is with all cases. I love working on my podcast and seeing it grow, but I definitely wouldn't be sad if, say, I ran out of things to cover. But anyway, let's talk about stats. Although it is true that percentage-wise, more men are victims of homicide than women, it is important to note that there is a big difference when it comes to who does the killing. Men are more likely to die from homicide than women, but at the same time, men are also more likely to be the perpetrator. So in other words, men are busy killing other men, and many times, other women. Whether they are strangers or they're their partners, or maybe just female relatives and friends. Does that make me anti-men? Of course not. Most women who are murdered by men are usually murdered by someone they know, like a husband or a boyfriend. While stranger killings are not common, it still happens more often than it should. This was the case for a young woman named Kenny Ong, who was literally just living her life, minding her own business, when a guy pretty much decides that, nope, it is time for me to make an entrance and destroy not just her life, but the lives of her loved ones. Let's begin. Who is Kenny Ong? Kenny was born on July 18, 1975, in Ipoh, the capital city of the state of Perak, in Malaysia. She was from a mixed heritage, her father being Chinese-Malaysian and her mother being Indian-Chinese. She also had a sister named Elsie, and the two were set to be quite close. Growing up, both Kenny and Elsie had everything they needed to thrive. Their parents both worked in the world of education, her father being a school principal, and her mother working as a cram school teacher. Understandably, they also put a lot of resources, time, and energy into their daughters, making sure they got the best education they could provide them with. Kenny seemed like an ambitious young lady, not only excelling in all her schoolwork, but she was also passionate about sports. She was captain of her school's squash team, and she also took up taekwondo during her school years, and even ended up earning a black belt. Sure, she came from a pretty good family with everything she needed, and she did seem quite sheltered and well-off, 
but she was intent on becoming an independent person with her own set of goals. Kenny decided that in order to make that individuality happen, she needed to go out on her own and explore her options. She moved away from Malaysia, arriving in Hawaii in 1995 to study economics. Her schooling went by without a hitch, and after graduating from university, she wanted to try looking for work in the U.S. Hawaii is fun and all, but probably not the best place if you want more opportunities in the corporate world. So she up and moved again, this time arriving in California. No clue how job searching was like back around the year 2000, but being young and bright, Candy found a job as an IT market analyst, and she not only managed to find a job she liked, she also found a man she liked enough to date. This man is a Singaporean-American named Brandon Ong, which, now that I think about it, they have the same last name. As a side note, in some cultures, such as Chinese culture, for example, it is quite common to run into people with the same last names, especially if you have one of those common last names, such as Chen, Wang, or, in this case, Ong. Ong, spelled O-N-G, is basically the same as Wang or Ng, spelt N-G, which is a Cantonese pronunciation. A lot of people in countries such as Singapore and Malaysia are ethnically Chinese, but because of how language has evolved, some last names, even if they have the same exact character in Chinese, can be pronounced slightly different, as in the example of Ong, O-N-G, Wang, W-A-N-G, and Ng, N-G. Now, it is also interesting to note that while it is common to run into someone with the same last name as your own, some more traditional or reserved people see it as a bad sign to marry someone with the same last name as your own. I suppose it implies that you're marrying someone from your own family, meaning incest, but that's kind of absurd because there are tons and tons of people of Chinese ancestry. Also, a lot of last names got changed around over the years, so it can be kind of impossible to pinpoint your exact lineage anyway. But if you want to get real technical, weren't we all related at some point? In the year 2001, when Kenny was 25, the couple tied a knot, settled down in San Diego, and pretty much became that couple that everyone went aww at. They looked great together, they both had great jobs, and most importantly, they had a great relationship. Like if you ask someone who was single what kind of relationship they wanted one day. They wanted what Kenny and Brandon had. I think a lot of us know at least one couple like that. Sometimes nauseatingly sweet, but you're happy for them. Things were going well for both Kenny and Brandon until May of 2003, when Kenny got bad news from her mother back in Malaysia. Her father was diagnosed with cancer and was not doing very well. As a woman with a good relationship with her family, she made it a priority to return to her family as soon as possible so she could be there for them. Her mother, though, told her not to worry and that she should focus on herself. They had enough family members around to help her father with anything he needed. Kenny went online to do some research on the kind of cancer her father had, and because it's never anything good when it comes to cancer, it made her worry even more. You know how it is. 
when you Google your symptoms and basically it's always a hundred times more serious than you thought. So Candy told her mother that she must return. I get it. You're not there and you feel bad. And also, what if things took a turn for the worse? She'd probably hate to not have been able to see her father one last time. As soon as Kani's flight landed in Kuala Lumpur on June 1st, 2003, she took a taxi and headed straight to the hospital to check on her father. After days of staying in the hospital with him and being there for her family, the doctors announced that her father's surgery was a success, and he was now healing and ready to face life once again. Great news, right? For sure. After hearing this, Kenny was finally able to relax a bit and went ahead to book her return flight to the U.S. Her husband, her job, and her life in the U.S. was still there, so it was only a matter of time until she had to return. She purchased a return flight for June 14, 2003. Kenny spent her last few days in Malaysia basically just hanging out with her family and friends, as one does when traveling home. On the night before her departure, June 13, Kenny decided that she wanted to gather all her closest family and friends for a farewell dinner. They booked a table at Monday Restaurant in Bangsar Shopping Center, which is just your typical mall filled with various shops and restaurants. Kenny and her mother, Pearlie, ended up arriving a little late. But you know, she's the guest of honor, so I guess it should be fine. They drove down into the mall's underground parking garage, found an empty spot, and parked. The parking garage was set to have not been very well lit. Perhaps some lighting fixtures weren't working, or maybe some corners of the garage was just not within light's reach. We've all experienced something similar, I'm sure. And while some of us brush it off or barely notice, some others, like Canny's mom, took note of this. At the time, it did make her a bit nervous. But who really thinks anything bad will happen? Plus, they were in a hurry. No time to worry about other things. As the two women rushed across the parking garage to get to the elevators, Candy noted that she had left her parking ticket in her car. That meant that she would have to go grab it later, go back to get it validated, and then return to the car to drive. Like I said, they were running late. Maybe she would have returned to grab it if she felt she had time to spare, but that was not the case. What happened to her afterwards should not have happened, so whether or not she left a parking ticket in the car should not be relevant. But in this case, it does make a difference. You'll see what I mean. Kenny and everyone else had a wonderful time at dinner, eating lots of steak, seafood, you name it. It was Candy's last night with her family, so they made the most out of it. Some of the dinner-goers decided to continue the party at the restaurant and maybe go to a bar or some other friend's house for some drinks. Candy agreed, but knowing that her mother wasn't up for this, she told everyone to stay put and that she was going to drive her mother back home first and then meet up with them later. So Candy, her sister Elsie, and her mother Pearlie headed off to the parking garage together. Their car was apparently not parked super far from the elevators or the pay station, but seeing that her mother was tired, Kenny offered to run to the car to grab the ticket while her sister and mother waited for her there. 
This is a pretty normal thing to do, I believe, so no one really objected to this. Except, you can probably imagine what happens next, because I've given you a fair amount of foreshadowing. Yep, Kenny left for her car but does not return. Pearlie and Elsie stood by the pay station waiting for Kenny, but after 20 minutes went by and Kenny still wasn't back, they started to worry. What could be keeping her? Cell phones were already in existence at this point, in case you are a much younger listener, so this was the next step. Elsie tried calling her sister, twice. The first call, no one answered, and when she tried the second time, the call went straight to voicemail. Alarm bells were probably on full blast right now in Elsie and Pearlie's heads, so the two hurried over to where the car, a Tiara Proton, was supposedly parked. FYI, a Proton is a Malaysian car brand for those unfamiliar with car brands. As the two arrived at where the car was parked at earlier, they found the spot empty. No sign of Canny or the Proton. Elsie and Pearlie rushed back to their friends and family who were still at the restaurant, and after explaining what had happened, everyone started panicking, and various members tried calling Canny's phone again. Her phone would ring and get immediately sent to voicemail, though, as if someone was deliberately hanging up on them, over and over. Very sketchy and worrying. Some friends went down to the parking garage and looked around, and that's when they discovered that there were plenty of cameras placed all around the perimeter. If these were working, then surely it would have captured what happened to Canny. To their relief, the cameras were not fake cameras. They managed to convince the shopping mall security guards to show them what the cameras had recorded, and it was horrifying. They saw footage of the Tiara Proton speeding through the parking garage. Then the car went straight through the exit barriers when it arrived at the exit of the garage. That's odd, right? Almost something straight out of a movie. I'm very surprised that no one noticed a car just destroying a barrier like that. What were the security guards even doing? Or did they notice, but it was too late to go out and chase the car, so they let it go? The cameras managed to get a clear shot of the interior of the car, and the car was being driven by a strange male, and on the passenger seat was a woman, presumably Canny, who looked like she was scared out of her mind. That was probably enough for the Ong family to somewhat piece together what happened, and of course, they immediately notified the police. It was already midnight by this point, and knowing that one of their beloved family members and friends had most likely been abducted by a stranger, no one was willing to sit around and wait for the police to do their job. They began driving all around Kuala Lumpur, hoping to spot Kenny's car, hoping to stop anything else from happening. One of Kenny's longtime friends, Noreen, was at the dinner with them. She was also worried sick, but worst of all, she began to receive calls from Kenny's husband when he realized his calls to her weren't getting through. Noreen tried her best to explain to Brandon the situation, but how could it even make sense? It's like waking up and suddenly you're thrown into a horror movie, and with him being thousands of miles away in another country, I can only imagine how helpless he must have felt. Nothing good happened for the rest of the night. Those that stayed up looking for Kenny found nothing, and eventually everyone had to admit defeat for the time being and return home. 
According to statistics from the FBI and criminal experts, the first three hours can be the most crucial in finding missing persons, especially ransom kidnappings, as kidnappers tend to make demands. After that, it's the first 48 hours, and then 72 hours. Experts say the first 48 hours are most important because it's the best window of time to do any kind of questioning and follow-ups with witnesses. We humans are not perfect, and our memory is far from perfect. Our memories are set to start fading after 48 hours, and that is not very helpful when it comes to giving information and statements to the police. The longer a person's been missing, the more likely they're either in grave danger or already dead. In Canny's case, it's been more than 72 hours at this point. Days have gone by, and still, there was no sign of Canny or her tiara proton. Her family was fearing the worst, but that doesn't mean they are giving up. Eventually, they set up a press conference and begged whomever kidnapped Canny to please return her unharmed. People were not optimistic, though. One journalist who had covered multiple kidnapping cases over the years stated that Canny missing for so many days was not a good sign, as most kidnappers who want something and keep those kidnapped alive tend to make demands within a couple hours of taking someone. By this point, the entire nation was aware of Canny's case, and it was definitely on every single news outlet as it was being reported repeatedly. The police were also feeling the pressure to get this case resolved, but they knew the outcome at this point was likely not going to be optimistic. Within a few days of Canny's disappearance, the police found a car matching the description and things did not look good. The vehicle was clearly abandoned, and not only that, the front right tire was extremely slashed up, and in the back seat, they found lots of blood. They got the car, but to their disappointment, Canny was nowhere to be seen. Could she still be alive and maybe taken elsewhere? Or was she left somewhere else while her killer abandoned her car here? Upon hearing about the discovery of the car but no Canny, Pearlie pretty much knew that things had gone very south. It's defeating at this point, but it was still a top priority to find Canny and know what happened to her. Four days after Canny was reported missing, a second discovery was made, and this one was the worst. A construction worker, working near the place the abandoned proton was found, came across a manhole without a cover. He was a little suspicious, so he got closer and took a look. It was pretty bad. At first glance, there were two tires dumped in the manhole, but after taking a closer look, he discovered something in the shape of a human underneath the tires, completely charred, burnt beyond recognition. This man immediately notified the police, and you guessed it, it was the remains of Canny Ong. Why the police failed to find her is a mystery to me, as it is said that the body wasn't too far from where the car was dumped. Maybe the manhole was in a secluded area inside a construction site, so the police didn't think to check it. I wasn't there, nor am I a Malaysian police officer, but maybe they could have checked a bit more thoroughly. Regardless, Kenny's body was found. Police and forensics teams arrived at the scene and immediately began to investigate the scene. Unfortunately, 
This case was so high profile that not just the police and investigators heard about it. Every single media outlet and press agency rushed to the scene of the crime, asking questions, taking photos, you name it. The smell of burnt rubber and human decay filled the air. You may have heard people say this, but the smell of death can really attach itself to your clothes and can linger for days. Kenny's body lay at the bottom of the manhole. Her upper body lay inside a small tunnel, her lower half outside of it. Her hands were tied with a piece of cloth over her chest, almost making it look like she was in prayer position. Her body was badly burnt, at least 90% of it. Whoever dumped her there also made sure to try to hide her body by throwing in two car tires filled with cement. Her body was soon after transported to a hospital mortuary because despite the fact that it's obviously burnt, they could maybe find some hidden clues by doing an autopsy. Technically, everyone already knew or believed the body belonged to Canny, but officially, they still had to do an autopsy and ask family or friends to make an official identification. I believe this had to have been too devastating for her family members, so this identification task was then handed off to Canny's friend, Noreen and Noreen's sister, as they were all extremely close. The two sisters confirmed Kenny's identity, despite the body being pretty much unrecognizable, but the police wanted to be absolutely sure, so they checked dental records and even performed a DNA test. Upon getting all their results, Kenny Ong was now declared officially deceased. Kenny's funeral was held at St. Francis Xavier Church on June 27th, 2003. Her husband Brandon had arrived in Malaysia, and he was beyond devastated. The two had only been married for two years, and now she was gone forever. He was seen kneeling by her casket, crying, and just not doing well overall. I'm sure there's some form of guilt in there, even though none of this was his fault. What if he had traveled to Malaysia with her? What if he had been there for her? What if this or what if that? Hundreds of people also showed up to give their support to the family. And understandably, the family really just wanted alone time to grieve in peace. Okay, for real. Raise your hand if everything cooking related is a huge hassle for you. That would be me. And most likely a bunch of you as well. But you also know that this is an essential adult life skill you probably need to live a normal and adjusted lifestyle. So that's where a service like HelloFresh comes in to save the day. By ordering HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Every week you get to pick from 40 recipes. So instead of buying too much grocery and eating the same thing all week, you get variety. No more trips to the grocery store or waiting at the checkout line because HelloFresh is going to make home cooking easier, faster, more enjoyable, and of course, more affordable. There's a reason why they're crowned as America's number one meal kit. Although we're way past January, I bet some of us have made some type of resolution related to getting healthier. It's probably one of the most common New Year's resolutions out there. HelloFresh can help you do that and also help you save money at the same time. The most important aspect to me 
is that the recipes do not take a long time. I am lazy, but I also want to appear like a functioning adult. These HelloFresh recipes can be ready within 15 minutes, and you don't have to compromise on taste and portion. Like I mentioned, they pre-portion everything for you, so there won't be annoying leftovers to deal with. Like, you might have too little left for your next meal. So do you keep it? Do you throw it out? A little awkward. I personally am not picky when it comes to food, so time is always the determining factor for me. I like quick and easy recipes, and of course, if you happen to love cooking and challenges, there is definitely something out there for you Gordon Ramsays. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Asian65 and use code Asian65 for 65% off plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash Asian65, code Asian65 for 65% off. So go ahead and try out America's number one meal kit if you want to make some positive changes in 2023, because I sure need it. What's something most of us have in common? Well, there's several, I believe. But one major thing is that we need money to survive in this world. I know, it's cruel and it sucks, but what can we do? We constantly worry about money. And if you're in the United States, you have the additional task of worrying about your credit score. I'm still trying to figure out this whole system, and it's complicated. So what can we do? Check our bank accounts daily like it's our second job, or just leave it in the hands of whatever god is out there. There is another way, actually. Chime is a financial technology company that can help you manage money you have and also help build your credit score over time. They report your payments to credit bureaus, and they have reportedly helped their members increase about 30 points on average, which is definitely a good amount. They don't charge annual fees, no need for large security deposits, and for someone who's starting out, they don't require credit checks to apply. So that's a great benefit. So start your credit journey with Chime. Sign up only takes two minutes and doesn't affect your credit score because so many places actually deduct your score and it's terrible. Get started at Chime.com Asian. That's Chime.com Asian. The Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card is issued by Stride Bank, North America, pursuant to a license from Visa USA Chime checking account and $200 qualifying direct deposit required to apply for the secured Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card. Regular on-time payment history can have a positive impact on your credit score. Impact of score may vary, and some users' scores may not improve. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply except at MoneyPass ATMs in a 7-Eleven or any AllPoint or Visa Plus Alliance ATM. Now back to the kidnapper slash murderer. Who did this? And why? Was it personal? What made them want to go so far as to burn her body and hide it like this? It doesn't seem like an easy task whatsoever. Kidnapping, killing, burning them, and then hiding it in a manhole with two cement-filled tires. Before they could get to the who, though, they had to perform an autopsy on Candy's remains as it could indicate a more complete story. Although Candy's body appeared to be mostly burnt, it seems like it was more of a surface damage. They were able to find semen in her body, which indicated that she was likely a victim of rape and then murder. 
No one recognized the man from the CCTV footage in the parking garage, and if he had raped and killed Canny, he really was intent on hiding her body so she wouldn't be found. Maybe he thought by burning her, it would take longer to identify her. And maybe it could also get rid of any trace of his semen. Some people felt that this man was an experienced killer, like he knew exactly what to do and how to get away with it. But he didn't really get away with it, as the body was still found and he didn't really dump the car too far off either. Does he sound like an experienced serial killer to you? Or just a man who committed a crime of opportunity? Around the time Candy's body was discovered, an undercover policeman came forward and shared an extremely shocking statement that will make you go, what the hell? Seriously. On the night of Kenny Ong's abduction, two policemen were out and about in a rather high-crime neighborhood when they came across a Tiara Proton parked on the side of the road. It stood out to them, so understandably, they approached the car to see what the deal was. Upon closer inspection, they noticed a man sitting in the driver's seat and a visibly distressed-looking woman on the passenger side. The policeman motioned for the man to roll down his window, and he complied. He asked what they were doing parked there, and the man explained that he and his girlfriend were in the middle of a heated discussion regarding her family. This doesn't sound very suspicious, but the policeman noticed that the woman looked extremely uncomfortable, frightened, and she was making pleading eyes and signals to the policeman. He then asked them both to hand over their ID cards in order to verify their identity, and both of them complied. The policeman continued to get weird vibes from the two people in the car, especially the woman, so he then asked the woman to please step out of the vehicle. Up until this point, the driver was very compliant and normal, but as soon as the policeman made the request, he turned into a different person. He began telling the policeman that everything was fine and he had no right to do this. He quickly proceeded to roll up his window and start the car. The policeman knew what was about to happen. This guy was going to run. As the car began to move forward, he instinctively took out his handgun and shot the front right car tire multiple times but the car still managed to speed away. The two policemen knew something was very wrong, so they got back on their motorcycles and chased the Proton as far as they could, but the driver was basically running for his life at this point, driving recklessly. Despite chasing them for a good bit, they eventually lost sight of the car. That's a huge bummer, because that timing was so crucial. I do believe the policeman did what he could at the time, but it just wasn't enough. I do wonder though why it took so many days for this guy to come forward. Was he not aware of this kidnapping case or did he just not connect the two things? So strange. If you don't think this interaction was good, think again. Remember how the policeman asked to see their IDs? Well, the car actually sped off before the IDs were returned to them. So... I guess the kidnapper basically handed his identity over on a silver platter, and those two ID cards became the key to solving this case. Although the policemen were first-hand witnesses to this abduction, they weren't the only ones. The second witness was a woman who had been waiting for a relative at an empty parking lot when she saw a car with a blown tire stop right next to her. 
A man got out and approached her, asking to borrow some tools so he could fix his tire. The witness also noticed a woman sitting inside the car, and she was making faces at her. The witness wasn't really sure what she was trying to convey, but it was weird enough that she decided to jot down the license plate number. Very smart and observant of her, indeed. As soon as she did that, the man immediately got back in the car and sped off once again. I don't think he managed to get the tire fixed, though, because as you may recall, when the police eventually found the car, the front right tire was still completely busted. The third witness was a man working at the construction site where Canny's body was eventually recovered. How was this man found? Well, he didn't really go to the police to report anything. He had been working late and just happened to see a Tiara Proton stop by the construction site. The kidnapper did not notice a man nearby. The construction worker was a bit curious, and once he got close enough to see what was happening, he saw that there was a topless woman lying in the back seat, and the man was on top of her. He didn't really think much of it, assuming that it was a couple trying to get some alone time. It's terrifying, knowing how close he was to the scene of the crime, and yet he had no idea what was really happening. A while later, the construction worker came across the Tiara Proton again, this time abandoned not far from the construction site. He took a quick peek and noticed that no one was inside this time. But there were valuables lying around. The car door was unlocked, and he took all the valuables he could find, including the car's handphone. He shared what he had found with a couple of his friends, and they decided to make a quick buck and sold it. When the police were investigating the case, they managed to trace the stolen handphone to a pawn shop, and after questioning the pawn shop, they managed to track down the construction worker and his two friends. They were initially arrested, because it was kind of sketchy. A woman is abducted, her car is stolen, and you happen to have her stuff? That seems very suspicious, so I agree they did make good suspects. The construction worker, though, denied any involvement in Candy's disappearance and death, explaining to the police that all he did was take valuables from the car, and that he did not abduct, rape, or murder anyone. With DNA evidence collected and a suspect's ID card on their file, it was not too difficult to identify and track down the real kidnapper who abducted and drove off in the Proton, or so they thought. The case was extremely publicized. Everyone knew about the case, which also made it kind of tricky. The police wanted to catch this guy ASAP, but they also wanted to keep this piece of information on the down low, afraid that once news got out, the suspect would then flee and disappear for good. Having his ID card was a good start, but it would later turn out that the address on the ID card was fake. So the police began to look deeper into this individual, pulling any sort of record that matched his name. Not so surprisingly, most of his public information was false, as in there were multiple false addresses, false employment histories. But the police continued to push on, hoping at least one piece of information could be real, aside from his name. After a thorough search, they managed to find a man matching his name and description who works as an aircraft cabin cleaner, and he also happens to be married. In order to not send any alarm bells his way, the police decide to track this man via his wife, simply by staking out at her workplace 
and then following her home. This whole stakeout thing spanned a total of three days, and in police investigation time, that probably felt like a lifetime. So they finally found where this man supposedly lives, but they have not seen him around at all. Does he really live here? Was he already on the run? Just as everyone was growing somewhat impatient and hopeless, they finally caught a break. At around 4 a.m. on June 20th, a week after the murder, the suspect was seen getting out of a taxi near his home, and as soon as he was spotted, police swooped in and arrested him. The hunt was finally over. So who was this kidnapper, rapist, murderer? His name was Ahmad Najib bin Aris. He was born sometime in the year 1976, which would have meant he was around 27 years old at the time he committed this heinous crime. It's believed that he came from a rather poor family, as he ended up dropping out of school at around 14 years old to work and help his family. Like I mentioned, he was a married man and even had two kids, both of them under the age of two at the time of the murder. He had been working as an aircraft cabin cleaner for Malaysia Airlines. Those who knew him didn't really have anything bad to say about him, and were actually very surprised he was the man behind Kenny's death. He wasn't some alcoholic wife and child beater, and he didn't have a terrible temper. He was in fact known as a diligent worker and an upstanding citizen. He had no criminal record. He did volunteer and community work. He was also heavily involved in the mosque he attended. Strange, right? How do you go from all-around good dude to kidnapper, rapist, and murderer overnight? Those who didn't know him were also genuinely surprised he was the murderer because according to many sources, he just didn't look like that kind of guy. We need to retire that phrase for real though. We've all heard the saying, don't judge a book by its cover. And it goes both ways. Just because someone looks mean and shifty, that doesn't mean they're a criminal. And just because someone acts sweet and kind, it also doesn't mean you know their deepest and darkest secrets. It's especially annoying when a suspect is found and everyone is suddenly like, oh, he looks like a killer. Oh, he has the crazy eyes. Then it turns out this person is innocent. Kind of rude, right? At the end of the day, most people are regular individuals until they do something bad. Also, these quote-unquote normal-looking people probably get to hide in plain sight because no one would suspect a good family man who goes to church, right? Definitely reminds me of BTK, a.k.a. Dennis Radar. The Ahmad Najib people knew was very different from the one that was arrested. Police immediately noticed his need to be in control when they began interrogating him as he demanded that he only wanted to speak with the head chief, as if he was some important big shot. Ahmad Najib did not show any signs of distress or fear during the process, and instead of answering any questions, he would continue to counter their questions with his own questions. That is really annoying. Instead of admitting to his guilt, he continued to press the police chief as to why he was arrested, why they think he was guilty. And what evidence did they even have on him? He was very mischievous, refusing to cooperate at all. This was not the man people thought they knew. The kind-hearted family man. 
Although the police were surprised at how things were playing out, they were not intimidated. They had more proof and evidence than they needed to nail him, and so they showed him what he asked for. The ID cards from the night of the abduction, and most incriminating of all, he still had the clothes he wore that day stashed away in his house, all of them stained with Candy's blood. Why he decided to keep those is a mystery, but I'm glad he did. It was pointless for him to try to deny his involvement anymore, so he finally gave up and admitted that yes, he abducted and killed Kani. Ahmad Najib was not provided any legal counsel at this time, and his family was alarmed and wanted to get him help ASAP. I get it, they're his family. They know a very different version of him, probably. Also, he was a dad to two young kids. I doubt his family wanted him to go to prison. It's biased for sure, but at the same time, it's their right to have legal counsel. The problem was that they got him a lawyer way too late, as in he had already given a full confession at this time. Sure, they could try and fight it afterwards, but that would not look good for them either. Ahmad Najib, though, didn't seem to care much about having a lawyer. It seems like he anticipated getting caught eventually, and now that he was finally arrested, it's like he could get rid of his deep, dark secrets. He even agreed to help the police walk through what really went down that night, and here is a brief account of the events from June 13. Ahmad Najib was walking around in the mall parking garage when he saw a young woman leaning inside the driver's car seat as if looking for something inside the car. He had a light bulb moment and without thinking, he ran over and shoved her inside the car. He got in right after her and started the car, and the next part was seen via the parking garage CCTV footage camera. During the entire car ride, Ahmad threatened Kani with a knife, telling her if she tried anything, he would kill her. This was how he managed to keep her under his control the whole time. After driving around for a while, they stopped at an industrial area, and that's when the two policemen found them parked on the side of the road. You already know what happened with the policemen, so let's fast forward to after they got away from them. Ahmad eventually parked next to a construction site, and this would end up matching exactly what the construction workers saw that night. Ahmad raped Kani in the back seat, got back in the driver's seat, and drove around some more, eventually stopping again and raping her again. He then took out his knife and stabbed her twice in the stomach, which explains why there was a large amount of blood found in the back seat. After stabbing her, he dragged her body out of the car and into the construction site, propping her up against the wall and tying her hands in front of her with a piece of cloth. He admitted that at this point, he was not sure what his next steps should be. It's almost like he had a quick moment of clarity, but he was already in too deep to just walk away. I personally think he could have walked away now, but I'm not a murderer, so my words don't mean much. At this point in time, Ahmad was frantically trying to think of what else he could do, and that's when he spotted the manhole. As he began dragging Kenny over to dump her in there, a nearby mosque began to play a call to prayer. If you're not familiar with this, mosques basically play a call to prayer five times a day, which serves as a reminder to fellow Muslims to go for their mandatory prayers. Interesting timing, right? Did this make Ahmad feel guilty? Like a sudden struggle between good and evil? 
Ahmad believed that Kani was conscious enough to hear this call to prayer as well, because her last words to him were, quote, I can hear the mosque's call to prayer. Please go home and pray, because now I would like to pray too, unquote. Surprisingly, Ahmad listened to her, so he left a dying woman inside the manhole and headed home to pray. I wonder what he prayed about, what he was thinking about while he prayed. But that moment of devoutness was short-lived. As you may recall, Kenny was not only dead, she was burned to bits. Ahmad returned the following evening on June 14th with a can of gasoline. He went back to the manhole and doused her body with it and set it on fire. It was as everyone predicted. He wanted to get rid of the evidence, or at least any evidence tying him to the crime. But obviously, that was a huge fail. With Ahmad's confession and his walkthrough with the police, everyone was 100% convinced that this was indeed the man that killed Kenny. Zero doubt. The way he described his actions down to every little detail, including his state of mind, was more than enough to nail him. His trial finally began on September 15, 2003, around three months after Kenny's murder. The prosecutors on this case were dead set on making sure he did not get out, and not just that, but that he received the heaviest punishment available to men like him. They also knew that the public was watching, anticipating a guilty verdict, and knowing how high-profile and gruesome this case was, the team did everything they could. Ahmad's defense team was also dead set on not letting their client get a guilty verdict. So under the counsel of his lawyers, Ahmad had the audacity to plead not guilty, which is basically going against his confession and every piece of information he provided law enforcement. You might be thinking, but he confessed. He walked them through everything. Evidence. Yes, yes, and yes. But if you really get nitpicky about things like this, did anyone physically see Ahmad killing her? Setting her on fire? The construction workers saw a man on top of a woman in the car, but could he say, without a doubt, that it was Ahmad and Kenny? In other words, regardless of how concrete all the evidence seems to be, it's still kind of circumstantial. The defense lawyers were basically trying to turn every single piece of evidence around, in turn making Kenny seem like she was not a victim, making her appear as a quote-unquote loose woman. They were determined to plant whatever seed of doubt they could in the minds of those residing in the court by downplaying all of Ahmad's actions and twisting any kind of evidence the prosecutors provided. He was caught on camera in the parking garage? Coincidence! He had bloodstained clothes in his possession? How do you know it was his clothes to begin with? Did you check the size? Why didn't Kenny fight back at all if she was really kidnapped? Didn't she have a black belt in Taekwondo? Why didn't she fight harder? You get the idea. I understand that it's their job to defend their client, but at what cost? And how do you anticipate how a victim is going to react? There is no textbook reaction to this kind of stuff. It's so easy for us to sit around and say shit like, Oh, I would have done this or that. I would have karate chopped his ass. But would you really have if you were in the victim's shoes? Everyone is different, and to put the responsibility on the victim to make it out alive instead of reprimanding the perpetrator is fucking ridiculous. Fortunately, 
The prosecutors also came prepared, as they had DNA evidence that was irrefutable. The blood found on Ahmad's clothing? Canny's blood. The semen found in Canny? Ahmad's sperm. The piece of cloth that was used to tie Canny's hands and mouth? The same cloth Ahmad uses at work. Well, well, well. The second trial started again in August of 2004. This time, Ahmad stayed silent when asked how he pleaded. Staying silent was not a good sign for him, but the defense team was hoping that this silence could also lead them to reevaluate all the evidence collected, which in turn could buy them some time. In reality, staying silent is almost equivalent to admitting guilt, because you have nothing else to add to your own defense. Which in this case, it's good. Finally, in February of 2005, a verdict was handed out. The judge told the court that the evidence linking Ahmad to the crime was just too overpowering and they were convinced that he was the one who murdered Kiani Ong. So, much to people's satisfaction, Ahmad Najib was sentenced to 20 years for the rape of Kiani Ong, which is the maximum one can get for rape, 10 strokes of the cane, and to top it all off, the death sentence. I know, the first two are kind of not that significant since he's getting the death sentence, but still good to know that all his crimes were being acknowledged. Ahmad told the judge he accepted the verdict, but don't worry, he will be back to appeal it. He attempted to appeal twice, once in 2007 and once in 2009. He was rejected both times, which meant that he exhausted his appeal limit. He tried one final time to appeal to the Sultan of Selangor, which is basically the constitutional ruler of the state of Selangor, but they also rejected him. This guy is like a cockroach. He just does not give up. After being on death row for more than 10 years, his final day on earth finally came. He was executed on September 23, 2016 in Kajang prison. He was 40 years old. Once again, people in the prison mentioned that he was a good man, stating that he was probably better than most guys outside of prison. He talked about religion to other inmates, led them in prayer, and was all around a good guy and a good Muslim. I mean, yeah, sure, if only he was a good man 13 years ago and didn't murder Canny. He was facing death the whole time he was in prison. He probably didn't have much else going on. And knowing that he did a terrible thing and that he was going to die soon, he probably wanted to make up for all his sins and be a good man. I've always been conflicted over that. Like if you murder and commit a bunch of crimes, then repent and become religious? Does your God, whoever they are, really just forgive and accept you into their heaven? A few other things to note before we end this episode. During the first court hearing, Kenny's friend and family got to meet the monster in real life for the very first time, and they hated it. Kenny's friend, Noreen, recalls him turning back to look at her and then smiling at her. That is extremely disturbing, and it makes you wonder how sick in the head this guy really is. Like, yeah, you guys got me, but Kenny is never coming back. Very deranged. I wonder if his friends or family still believe that he's innocent, that he was somehow set up to take the fall, or some other version like that. 
Everyone who knew him either found him to be just your average normal guy or a great guy with excellent work ethic, a great husband, and a wonderful father. I mean, do you really know someone? If his wife wasn't able to see it, how would anyone else? So many killers have had this great record of being a great guy, but then you find out they're actually real monsters living in a human skin suit. I guess that's wrong to say, as humans come in all shapes and forms. Some are good, some are bad. It's also really unfortunate that the media tried to sensationalize this case by feeding into what the defense team said about Canny. They had headlines about her being a black belt in taekwondo, about how she knew who Ahmad was and that he was her secret lover, shit like that. It's so irresponsible to say all that. It's like some people have no sense of right and wrong. Can't even imagine how this made Canny's family feel, not just having lost her, but also having to hear all these disgusting rumors made about her life. Also, she took taekwondo when she was a student. She was like 28 when she died. Does anyone really expect her to start doing moves on this guy holding a knife in the middle of the night in a moving vehicle? Give me a break. So there you have it. The vicious and terrifying case of a man who took his opportunity when he saw it, which ended in murder. Kenny was so young. She had so much more to live for. This man decided his needs came before her well-being, and even after encountering the police, he was still set on doing everything he planned on. There's a great documentary on the murder of Kenny Ong on YouTube, so please go ahead and watch it if you want to know more or if you want to hear from her friends and her mother directly. I know people have different opinions when it comes to the death penalty, so I won't get into that right now. But I'll just say, I don't really feel too bad about him getting hanged for his crimes. He got to live a longer life than Canny, and that alone is unfair. Friends, please stay safe. Always be alert of your surroundings. Stranger crimes like these are not the most common according to statistics, but that's not to say it doesn't happen. Do I wish we didn't have to fear these things? For sure. But unfortunately, we cannot control the actions of others. Let's watch out for others, though. Friends, strangers, and family alike. Life is so unpredictable. And while that is fun sometimes, it can also be scary. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this heavy episode. May Canny rest in peace. And although closure is not the right term for her family and friends, I do hope they are able to feel safer knowing that this man is gone from their lives. Till next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com.